This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter Five, Showing the Feelings of Living Property on Changing Owners. Mr. and Mrs. Shelby had retired to their apartment for the night. He was lounging in a large easy chair, looking over some letters that had come in the afternoon mail, and she was standing before her mirror, brushing out the complicated braids and curls in which Eliza had arranged her hair. For noticing her pale cheeks and haggard eyes, she had excused her attendance that night, and ordered her to bed. The employment, naturally enough, suggested her conversation with the girl in the morning, and turning to her husband she said carelessly, by the by, Arthur, who was that low-bred fellow that you lugged in to our dinner-table to-day?" "'Haley is his name,' said Shelby, turning himself rather uneasily in his chair, and continuing with his eyes fixed on a letter. "'Haley! Who is he? And what may be his business here, pray?' "'Well, he's a man that I transacted some business with last time I was at Natchez,' said Mr. Shelby and he presumed on it to make himself quite at home, and call and dine here, eh?" "'Why, I invited him. I had some accounts with him,' said Shelby. "'Is he a negro-trader?' said Mrs. Shelby, noticing a certain embarrassment in her husband's manner. "'Why, my dear, what put that into your head?' said Shelby, looking up. "'Nothing. Only Eliza came in here after dinner, in a great worry crying and taking on, and said you were talking with a trader, and that she heard him make an offer for her boy, the ridiculous little goose." "'She did, hey?' said Mr. Shelby, returning to his paper, which he seemed for a few moments quite intent upon, not perceiving that he was holding it bottom upwards. "'It will have to come out,' said he mentally, as well now as ever." "'I told Eliza,' said Mrs. Shelby, as she continued brushing her hair, that she was a little fool for her pains, and that you never had anything to do with that sort of persons. Of course, I knew you never meant to sell any of our people, least of all to such a fellow." "'Well, Emily,' said her husband, "'so I have always felt and said. But the fact is that my business lies so that I cannot get on without. I shall have to sell some of my hands." "'To that creature? Impossible! Mr. Shelby, you cannot be serious!' "'I'm sorry to say that I am,' said Mr. Shelby. "'I've agreed to sell Tom.' "'What? Our Tom? That good, faithful creature? Been your faithful servant from a boy. Oh, Mr. Shelby, and you have promised him his freedom, too. You and I have spoken to him a hundred times of it. Well, I can believe anything now. I can believe now that you could sell little Harry, poor Eliza's only child.' said Mrs. Shelby, in a tone between grief and indignation. "'Well, since you must know all, it is so. I have agreed to sell Tom and Harry both, and I don't know why I am to be rated as if I were a monster for doing what every one does every day.' "'But why, of all others, choose these?' said Mrs. Shelby. "'Why sell them, of all, on the place, if you must sell it all?' "'Because they will bring the highest sum of any.' That's why. I could choose another, if you say so. The fellow made me a high bid on Eliza, if that would suit you any better," said Mr. Shelby. "'The wretch!' said Mrs. Shelby vehemently. "'Well, I didn't listen to it a moment. Out of regard to your feelings, I wouldn't. So give me some credit. 
"'My dear,' said Mrs. Shelby, recollecting herself, "'forgive me. I have been hasty. I was surprised and entirely unprepared for this. But surely you will allow me to intercede for these poor creatures. Tom is a noble-hearted, faithful fellow, if he is black. I do believe, Mr. Shelby, that if he were put to it, he would lay down his life for you.' "'I know it. I dare say. But what's the use of all this? I can't help myself.' Why not make a pecuniary sacrifice? I'm willing to bear my part of the inconvenience. Oh, Mr. Shelby, I have tried, tried most faithfully, as a Christian woman should, to do my duty to these poor, simple, dependent creatures. I have cared for them, instructed them, watched over them, and know all their little cares and joys for years. And how can I ever hold up my head again among them, if, for the sake of a little paltry gain, we sell such a faithful, excellent, confiding creature as poor Tom, and tear from him in a moment all we have taught him to love and value. I have taught them the duties of the family, of parent and child, and husband and wife, and how can I bear to have this open acknowledgment that we care for no tie, no duty, no relation, however sacred compared with money? I have talked with Eliza about her boy, her duty to him as a Christian mother, to watch over him, pray for him, and bring him up in a Christian way. And now what can I say if you tear him away, and sell him, soul and body, to a profane, unprincipled man, just to save a little money? I have told her that one soul is worth more than all the money in the world. And how will she believe me when she sees us turn round and sell her child? Sell him, perhaps, to certain ruin of body and soul. I'm sorry you feel so about it. Indeed I am, said Mr. Shelby. And I respect your feelings, too, though I don't pretend to share them to their full extent. But I tell you now, solemnly, it's of no use. I can't help myself. I didn't mean to tell you this, Emily, but in plain words there is no choice between selling these two and selling everything. Either they must go, or all must. Haley has come into possession of a mortgage, which, if I don't clear off with him directly, will take everything before it. I've raked and scraped and borrowed, and all but begged, and the price of these two was needed to make up the balance, and I had to give them up. Haley fancied the child. He agreed to settle the matter that way, and no other. I was in his power, and had to do it. If you feel so to have them sold, would it be any better to have all sold?" Mrs. Shelby stood like one stricken. Finally, turning to her toilette, she rested her face in her hands, and gave a sort of groan. "'This is God's curse on slavery, a bitter, bitter, most accursed thing, a curse to the master and a curse to the slave. I was a fool to think I could make anything good out of such a deadly evil. It is a sin to hold a slave under laws like ours. I always felt it was. I always thought so when I was a girl. I thought so still more after I joined the church. But I thought I could gild it over. I thought, by kindness and care and instruction, I could make the condition of mine better than freedom. Fool that I was! Why, wife, you are getting to be an abolitionist, quite. Abolitionist! If they knew all I know about slavery, they might talk. We don't need them to tell us. You know I never thought that slavery was right, never felt willing to own slaves." "'Well, therein you differ from many wise and pious men,' said Mr. Shelby. 
You remember Mr. B.'s sermon the other Sunday?' "'I don't want to hear such sermons. I never wish to hear Mr. B. in our church again. Ministers can't help the evil, perhaps, can't cure it any more than we can. But defend it? It always went against my common sense. And I think you didn't think much of that sermon, either.' "'Well,' said Shelby, "'I must say these ministers sometimes carry matters further than we poor sinners would exactly dare to do. We men of the world must wink pretty hard at various things, and get used to a deal that isn't the exact thing. But we don't quite fancy when women and ministers come out broad and square, and go beyond us in matters of either modesty or morals, that's a fact. But now, my dear, I trust you see the necessity of the thing, and you see that I have done the very best that circumstances would allow." "'Oh, yes, yes,' said Mrs. Shelby, hurriedly and abstractedly fingering her gold watch. "'I haven't any jewellery of any amount,' she added thoughtfully. "'But would not this watch do something? It was an expensive one, when it was bought. If I could only at least save Eliza's child, I would sacrifice anything I have.' "'I'm sorry, very sorry, Emily,' said Mr. Shelby. "'I'm sorry this takes hold of you so, but it will do no good.' The fact is, Emily, the thing's done. The bills of sale are already signed, and in Haley's hands, and you must be thankful it is no worse. That man has had it in his power to ruin us all, and now he is fairly off. If you knew the man as I do, you'd think that we had had a narrow escape. Is he so hard, then? Why, not a cruel man, exactly, but a man of leather, a man alive to nothing but trade and profit, cool and unhesitating and unrelenting as death and the grave. He'd sell his own mother at a good percentage, not wishing the old woman any harm, either. And this wretch owns that good, faithful Tom and Eliza's child? Well, my dear, the fact is that this goes rather hard with me. It's a thing I hate to think of. Haley wants to drive matters and take possession to-morrow. I'm going to get out my horse bright and early and be off. I can't see Tom, that's a fact and you had better arrange a drive somewhere, and carry Eliza off. Let the thing be done when she is out of sight." "'No, no,' said Mrs. Shelby. "'I'll be in no sense accomplice or help in this cruel business. I'll go and see poor old Tom, God help him, in his distress. They shall see, at any rate, that their mistress can feel for and with them. As to Eliza, I dare not think about it. The Lord forgive us. What have we done that this cruel necessity should come on us?' There was one listener to this conversation whom Mr. and Mrs. Shelby little suspected. Communicating with their apartment was a large closet, opening by a door into an outer passage. When Mrs. Shelby had dismissed Eliza for the night, her feverish and excited mind had suggested the idea of his closet, and she had hidden herself there, and with her ear pressed close against the crack of the door, had lost not a word of the conversation. When the voices died into silence, she rose and crept stealthily away, pale, shivering, with rigid features and compressed lips. She looked an entirely altered being from the soft and timid creature she had been hitherto. She moved cautiously along the entry, paused one moment at her mistress's door, and raised her hands in mute appeal to heaven, and then turned and glided into her own room. It was a quiet, neat apartment on the same floor with her mistress. There was a pleasant sunny window where she had often sat singing at her sewing. There a little case of books, and various little fancy articles, ranged by them, the gifts of Christmas holidays. 
There was her simple wardrobe in the closet, and in the drawers. Here was, in short, her home, and on the whole a happy one it had been to her. But there, on the bed, lay her slumbering boy, his long curls falling negligently around his unconscious face, his rosy mouth half open, his little fat hands thrown out over the bedclothes, and a smile spread like a sunbeam over his whole face. "'Poor boy! Poor fellow!' said Eliza. "'They have sold you. But your mother will save you yet.' No tear dropped over that pillow. In such straits as these, the heart has no tears to give. It drops only blood, bleeding itself away in silence. She took a piece of paper and a pencil, and wrote hastily, "'Oh, Mrs., dear Mrs., don't think me ungrateful. Don't think hard of me, anyway. I heard all you and Master said to-night. I am going to try to save my boy. You will not blame me. God bless and reward you for all your kindness.' Hastily folding and directing this, she went to a drawer and made up a little package of clothing for her boy, which she tied with a handkerchief, firmly around her waist. And so fond is a mother's remembrance, that even in the terrors of that hour she did not forget to put in the little package one or two of his favorite toys, reserving a gaily painted parrot to amuse him, when she should be called on to awaken him. It was some trouble to arouse the little sleeper, but after some effort he sat up, and was playing with his bird while his mother was putting on her bonnet and shawl. "'Where are you going, mother?' said he, as she drew near the bed with his little coat and cap. His mother drew near, and looked so earnestly into his eyes, that he at once divined that something unusual was the matter. "'Hush, Harry,' she said. "'Mustn't speak loud, or they will hear us. A wicked man was coming to take little Harry away from his mother, and carry him way off in the dark, but mother won't let him. She's going to put on her little boy's cap and coat and run off with him so the ugly man can't catch him." Saying these words, she had tied and buttoned on the child's simple outfit, and, taking him in her arms, she whispered to him to be very still, and, opening a door in her room which led into the outer veranda, she glided noiselessly out. It was a sparkling, frosty, starlight night and the mother wrapped the shawl close around her child, as, perfectly quiet with vague terror, he clung round her neck. Old Bruno, a great Newfoundland, who slept at the end of the porch, rose with a low growl as she came near. She gently spoke his name, and the animal, an old pet and playmate of hers, instantly wagging his tail, prepared to follow her, though apparently revolving much, in this simple dog's head, what such an indiscreet midnight promenade might mean. Some dim ideas of imprudence or impropriety in the measure seemed to embarrass him considerably, for he often stopped as Eliza glided forward, and looked wistfully, first at her and then at the house, and then, as if reassured by reflection, he pattered along after her again. A few minutes brought them to the window of Uncle Tom's cottage, and Eliza, stopping, tapped lightly on the window-pane. The prayer-meeting at Uncle Tom's had, in the order of hymn-singing, been protracted to a very late hour, and, as Uncle Tom had indulged himself in a few lengthy solos afterwards, the consequence was that, although it was now between twelve and one o'clock, he and his worthy helpmeet were not yet asleep. "'Good Lord, what's that?' said Aunt Chloe, starting up and hastily drawing the curtain. "'My sakes alive, if it ain't Lizzie! Get on your clothes, old man, quick! There's old Bruno, too, a-pawin' around. What on earth—' I'm going to open the door." And suiting the action to the word, the door flew open, the light of the tallow candle, which Tom had hastily lighted, fell on the haggard face and dark, wild eyes of the fugitive. 
Lord bless you, I'm scared to look at you, Lizzie. Are you tucked sick, or what's come over you?' "'I'm running away, Uncle Tom and Aunt Chloe, carrying off my child. Master sold him.' "'Sold him?' echoed both, lifting up their hands in dismay. "'Yes, sold him,' said Eliza firmly. I crept into the closet by mistress's door to-night, and I heard master tell missus that he had sold my Harry, and you, Uncle Tom, both, to a trader, and that he was going off this morning on his horse, and that the man was to take possession to-day." Tom had stood, during this speech, with his hands raised, and his eyes dilated like a man in a dream. Slowly and gradually, as its meaning came over him, he collapsed, rather than seated himself, on his old chair and sunk his head down upon his knees. "'The good Lord have pity on us,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Oh, it don't seem as if it was true. But what has he done that Master should sell him?' "'He hasn't done anything. It isn't for that. Master don't want to sell, and Mrs. she's always good. I heard her plead and beg for us, but he told her it was no use, that he was in this man's debt, and that this man had got the power over him, and that if he didn't pay him off clear, it would end in his having to sell the place and all the people and move off. Yes, I heard him say there was no choice between selling these two and selling all. The man was driving him so hard. Master said he was sorry, but, oh, Mrs., you ought to have heard her talk. If she ain't a Christian and an angel, there never was one. I'm a wicked girl to leave her so, but then I can't help it. She said herself one soul was worth more than the world, and this boy has a soul, and if I let him be carried off, who knows what'll become of it? It must be right. But if it ain't right, the Lord forgive me, for I can't help doing it." "'Well, old man,' said Aunt Chloe, "'why don't you go, too? Will you wait to be toted down the river where they kill niggers with hard work and starving? I'd a heap rather die than go there any day. There's time for you. Be off with Lizzie. You've got a pass to come and go any time. Come, bustle up, and, and I'll get your things together." Tom slowly raised his head, and looked sorrowfully but quietly around, and said, "'No, no, I ain't going. Let Eliza go. It's her right. I wouldn't be the one to say no. Tain't in nature for her to stay. But you heard what she said. If I must be sold, or all the people on the place and everything go to rack, why, let me be sold. I suppose I can buy it as well as any of them," he added, while something like a sob and a sigh shook his broad, rough chest convulsively. "'Master always found me on the spot. He always will. I never have broke trust, nor used my past no ways contrary to my word, and I never will. It's better for me alone to go than to break up the place and sell all. Master ain't to blame, Chloe, and he'll take care of you and the poor—' Here he turned to the rough trundle bed full of little woolly heads, and broke fairly down. He leaned over the back of the chair, and covered his face with his large hands. Sobs, heavy, hoarse, and loud, shook the chair, and great tears fell through his fingers on the floor. Just such tears, sir, as you dropped into the coffin where lay your first-born son. Such tears, woman, as you shed when you heard the cries of your dying babe. For, sir, he was a man, and you are but another man. And woman, though dressed in silk and jewels, you are but a woman, and in life's great straits and mighty griefs you feel but one sorrow." "'And now,' said Eliza, as she stood in the door, "'I saw my husband only this afternoon, and I little knew then what was to come. They have pushed him to the very last standing-place, and he told me to-day that he was going to run away. Do try, if you can, to get word to him. 
Tell him how I went, and why I went, and tell him I'm going to try and find Canada. You must give my love to him, and tell him, if I never see him again—' She turned away, and stood with her back to them for a moment, and then added in a husky voice, "'Tell him to be as good as he can, and try and meet me in the kingdom of heaven.' "'Call Bruno in there,' she added. "'Shut the door on him, poor beast. He mustn't go with me.' A few last words and tears, a few simple adieus and blessings, and clasping her wondering and affrighted child in her arms, she glided noiselessly away. End of chapter 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 6 Discovery Mr. and Mrs. Shelby, after their protracted discussion of the night before, did not readily sink to repose, and, in consequence, slept somewhat later than usual the ensuing morning. "'I wonder what keeps Eliza,' said Mrs. Shelby, after giving her bell repeated pulls to no purpose. Mr. Shelby was standing before his dressing-glass, sharpening his razor, and just then the door opened, and a colored boy entered with his shaving-water. "'Andy,' said his mistress, "'step to Eliza's door, and tell her I have rung for her three times. Poor thing!' she added to herself with a sigh. Andy soon returned, with eyes very wide in astonishment. "'Lor, missus! Lizzie's drawers all open, and her things all lying every which way, and I believe she's done cleared out!' The truth flashed upon Mr. Shelby and his wife at the same moment. He exclaimed, "'Then she suspected it, and she's off!' "'The Lord be thanked,' said Mrs. Shelby. "'I trust she is.' "'Wife, you talk like a fool. Really, it will be something pretty awkward for me if she is. Haley saw that I hesitated about selling this child, and he'll think I connived at it to get him out of the way. It touches my honor.' And Mr. Shelby left the room hastily. There was great running and ejaculating, and opening and shutting of doors, and appearance of faces in all shades of color in different places, for about a quarter of an hour. One person only, who might have shed some light on the matter, was entirely silent, and that was the head cook, Aunt Chloe. Silently, and with a heavy cloud settled down over her once joyous face, she proceeded making out her breakfast biscuits, as if she heard and saw nothing of the excitement around her. Very soon about a dozen young imps were roosting, like so many crows, on the veranda railings, each one determined to be the first one to apprise the strange master of his ill-luck. "'He'll be rail mad, I'll be bound,' said Andy. "'Won't he swar?' said little black Jake. "'Yes, for he does swar,' said woolly-headed Mandy. "'And I hearn him yesterday at dinner. I hearn him all about it, cause I got it into closet where missus keeps the great jugs, and I hearn every word.' And Mandy, who had never in her life thought of the meaning of a word she had heard more than a black cat, now took airs of superior wisdom, and strutted about forgetting to state that though actually coiled up among the jugs at the time specified, she had been fast asleep all the time. When, at last, Haley appeared, hooted and spurred, he was saluted with the bad tidings on every hand. The young imps on the veranda were not disappointed in their hope of hearing him swar, which he did with a fluency and fervency which delighted them all amazingly, as they ducked and dodged hither and thither to be out of the reach of his riding whip and all whooping off together, they tumbled in a pile of immeasurable giggle on the withered turf under the veranda, 
where they kicked up their heels and shouted to their full satisfaction. "'If I had the little devils!' muttered Haley between his teeth. "'But you hain't got them, though,' said Andy, with a triumphant flourish, and making a string of indescribable mouths at the unfortunate trader's back, when he was fairly beyond hearing. "'I say now, Shelby, this year's a most extraordinary business,' said Haley, as he abruptly entered the parlour. "'It seems that gal's off with her young'un.' "'Mr. Haley, Mrs. Shelby is present,' said Mr. Shelby. "'I beg pardon, ma'am,' said Haley, bowing slightly with a still lowering brow. "'But still I say, as I said before, this year's a singular report. Is it true, sir?' "'Sir,' said Mr. Shelby, "'if you wish to communicate with me, you must observe something of the decorum of a gentleman. Andy, take Mr. Haley's hat and riding-whip. Take a seat, sir.' Yes, sir, I regret to say that the young woman, excited by overhearing, or having reported to her, something of this business, has taken her child in the night, and made off. I did expect fair dealing in this matter, I confess, said Haley. Well, sir, said Mr. Shelby, turning sharply round upon him, what am I to understand by that remark? If any man calls my honour in question, I have but one answer for him. The trader cowered at this and in a somewhat lower tone said that it was plaguy hard on a fellow that had made a fair bargain to be gulled that way. Mr. Haley, said Mr. Shelby, if I did not think you had some cause for disappointment, I should not have borne from you the rude and unceremonious style of your entrance into my parlour this morning. I say thus much, however, since appearances call for it, that I shall allow of no insinuations cast upon me, as if I were at all partner to any unfairness in this matter. Moreover, I shall feel bound to give you every assistance in the use of horses, servants, etc., in the recovery of your property. So, in short, Haley, said he, suddenly dropping from the tone of dignified coolness to his ordinary one of easy frankness, the best way for you is to keep good-natured and eat some breakfast, and we will then see what is to be done. Mrs. Shelby now rose, and said her engagements would prevent her being at the breakfast-table that morning and deputing a very respectable mulatto woman to attend to the gentleman's coffee at the sideboard, she left the room. "'Old lady don't like your humble servant, over and above,' said Haley, with an uneasy effort to be very familiar. "'I am not accustomed to hear my wife spoken of with such freedom,' said Mr. Shelby dryly. "'Beg pardon. Of course, only a joke, you know,' said Haley, forcing a laugh. "'Some jokes are less agreeable than others,' rejoined Shelby devilish free, now I've signed those papers, cuss him," muttered Haley to himself, quite grand since yesterday. Never did fall of any Prime Minister at court occasion wider surges of sensation than the report of Tom's fate among his compeers on the place. It was the topic in every mouth, everywhere, and nothing was done in the house or in the field but to discuss its probable results. Eliza's flight, an unprecedented event on the place, was also a great accessory in stimulating the general excitement. Black Sam, as he was commonly called, from his being about three shades blacker than any other son of ebony on the place, was revolving the matter profoundly in all its phases and bearings, with a comprehensiveness of vision, and a strict lookout to his own personal well-being, that would have done credit to any white patriot in Washington. "'It's an ill wind that blow nowhere, that our fact,' said Sam, sententiously, giving an additional hoist to his pantaloons, and adroitly substituting a long nail in place of a missing suspender-button, with which effort of mechanical genius he seemed highly delighted. "'Yes, 
"'It's an ill wind blows nowhere,' he repeated. "'Now, dar, Tom's down, while course there's room for some nigger to be up. And why not this nigger? That's the idea. Tom, riding round the country, boots blacked, pass in his pocket, all grand as cuffy, but who he? Now, why shouldn't Sam? That's what I want to know. Halloo, Sam! Oh, Sam! Masters wants you to coach Bill and Jerry," said Andy, cutting short Sam's soliloquy. "'Hi! What's the foot now, young un?' "'Why, you don't know, I suppose, that Lizzie's cut stick and clared out with her young un.' "'You teach your granny,' said Sam, with infinite contempt. "'Noted a heap sight sooner than you did. This nigger ain't so green now.' "'Well, anyhow, Master wants Bill and Jerry geared right up, and you and I's to go with Master Haley to look out to her.' "'Good now. That's the time of day,' said Sam. "'It's Sam that's called for in these here times. He's the nigger. See if I don't cotch her now. Master'll see what Sam can do.' "'Ah, but Sam,' said Andy, "'you'd better think twice, for Mrs. don't want her cotched, and she'll be in your wool.' "'Hi!' said Sam, opening his eyes. "'How you know dat?' "'Heard her say so, my own self, this blessed morning when I bring in Master's shaving-water. She sent me to see why Lizzie didn't come to dress her.' And when I told her she was off, she just ras up and says she, "'The Lord be praised!' And Master, he seemed rail mad, and says he, "'Wife, you talk like a fool. But, Lord, she'll bring him, too. I knows well enough how that'll be. It's allers best to stand Mrs. side the fence, now I tell you.' Black Sam, upon this, scratched his woolly pate, which, if it did not contain very profound wisdom, still contained a great deal of a particular species much in demand among politicians of all complexions and countries, and vulgarly denominated, knowing which side the bread is buttered. So, stopping with grave consideration, he again gave a hitch to his pantaloons, which was his regularly organized method of assisting his mental perplexities. "'There ain't no saying, never, about no kind of thing in this yer world,' he said at last. Sam spoke like a philosopher, emphasizing this as if he had had a large experience in different sorts of worlds, and therefore had come to his conclusions advisedly. Now, certain I'd a said that Mrs. would a scoured the varsal world after Lizzie, added Sam thoughtfully. So she would, said Andy. But can't you see through the ladder, you black nigger? Mrs. don't want this yer Mrs. Haley to get Lizzie's boy. That's to go. Hi, said Sam, with an indescribable intonation known only to those who have heard it among the negroes. "'I'll tell you more and all,' said Andy. "'I specs you'd better be making tracks for dem horses, mighty sudden, too, for I hear Mrs. Quirin' arter yer, so you stood foolin' long enough.' Sam, upon this, began to bestir himself in real earnest, and after a while appeared bearing down gloriously toward the house, with Bill and Jerry in full canter, and adroitly throwing himself off before they had had any idea of stopping, he brought them up alongside of the horse-post like a tornado. Haley's horse, which was a skittish young colt, winced and bounced, and pulled hard at his halter. "'Ho, ho!' said Sam. "'Skeery, are you?' And his black visage lighted up with a curious mischievous gleam. "'I'll fix you now,' said he. There was a large beech-tree overshadowing the place, and the small, sharp, triangular beech-nuts lay scattered thickly on the ground. With one of these in his fingers, Sam approached the colt, stroked and patted, and seemed apparently busy in soothing his agitation. On pretense of adjusting the saddle, he adroitly slipped under the sharp little nut, in such a manner that the least weight brought upon the saddle would annoy the nervous sensibilities of the animal, without leaving any perceptible graze or wound. "'Dar!' he said, 
rolling his eyes with an approving grin. Me fix em. At this moment Mrs. Shelby appeared on the balcony, beckoning to him. Sam approached with as good a determination to pay court as did ever suit her after a vacant place at St. James or Washington. "'Why have you been loitering so, Sam? I sent Andy to tell you to hurry.' "'Lord bless you, Mrs.' said Sam. "'Horses won't be cotched all in a minute. They done clared out way down to the south pasture, and the Lord knows why.' "'Sam, how often must I tell you not to say Lord bless you and the Lord knows and such things? It's wicked.' "'Oh, Lord bless my soul! I done forgot, Mrs. I won't say nothing of the sort no more.' "'Why, Sam, you just have said it again. Did I? Oh, Lord! I mean, I, I didn't go for to say it. You must be careful, Sam. Just let me get my breath, Mrs., and I'll start fair. I'll be very careful. Well, Sam, you are to go with Mr. Haley to show him the road and help him. Be careful to the horses, Sam. You know Jerry was a little lame last week. Don't ride them too fast." Mrs. Shelby spoke the last words with a low voice and strong emphasis. "'Let this child alone for that,' said Sam, rolling up his eye with a volume of meaning. "'Lord knows! Hi! Didn't I say that?' said he, suddenly catching his breath with a ludicrous flourish of apprehension which made his mistress laugh spite herself. "'Yes, Mrs. I'll look out for the horses.' "'Now, Andy,' said Sam, returning to his stand under the beech-trees, "'you see, I wouldn't be tall surprised if that our gentleman critter should give a fling by and by when he comes to be getting up. You know, Andy, critters will do such things.' And therewith Sam poked Andy in the side in a highly suggestive manner. "'Hi!' said Andy with an air of instant appreciation. "'Yes, you see, Andy, Mrs. wants to make time. Dead ours clare to her most ordinary observer. I just make a little for her. Now, you see, get all these dare horses loose, carpin' promiscus, round this yar lot and down to the wood, dar. And I spec Masser'll won't be off in a hurry.' Andy grinned. "'You see,' said Sam, "'you see, Andy, if any such thing should happen as that Master Haley's horse should begin to act contrary and cut up, you and I just let's go arn to help him, and we'll help him, oh yes!" And Sam and Andy laid their heads back on their shoulders and broke into a low, immoderate laugh, snapping their fingers and flourishing their heels with exquisite delight. At this instant Haley appeared on the veranda, somewhat mollified by certain cups of very good coffee. He came out smiling and talking in tolerably restored humor. Sam and Andy, clawing for certain fragmentary palm-leaves, which they were in the habit of considering as hats, flew to the horse-posts to be ready to help Masser. Sam's palm-leaf had been ingeniously disentangled from all pretensions to braid, as respects its brim, and the slivers starting apart and standing upright gave it a blazing air of freedom and defiance quite equal to that of any Fiji chief while the whole brim of Andy's being departed bodily, he wrapped the crown on his head with a dexterous thump, and looked about well pleased, as if to say, "'Who says I haven't got a hat?' "'Well, boys,' said Haley, "'look alive now. We must lose no time.' "'Not a bit of him, Masser,' said Sam, putting Haley's rein in his hand, and holding his stirrup, while Andy was untying the other two horses. The instant Haley touched the saddle, the mettlesome creature bounded from the earth with a sudden spring that threw his master sprawling some feet off on the soft, dry turf. Sam, with frantic ejaculations, made a dive at the reins, but only succeeded in brushing the blazing palm-leaf aforenamed into the horse's eyes, which by no means tended to allay the confusion of his nerves. 
So with great vehemence he overturned Sam, and giving two or three contemptuous snorts, flourished his heels vigorously in the air, and was soon prancing away towards the lower end of the lawn, followed by Bill and Jerry, whom Andy had not failed to let loose according to contract, speeding them off with various direful ejaculations. And now ensued a miscellaneous scene of confusion. Sam and Andy ran and shouted, dogs barked here and there, and Mike, Mose, Mandy, Fanny, and all the smaller specimens on the place, both male and female, raced, clapped hands, whooped, and shouted with outrageous officiousness and untiring zeal. Haley's horse, which was a white one, and very fleet and spirited, appeared to enter into the spirit of the scene with great gusto, and having for his coursing ground a lawn of nearly half a mile in extent, gently sloping down on every side into indefinite woodland, he appeared to take infinite delight in seeing how near he could allow his pursuers to approach him, and then, when within a hand's breadth, whisk off with a start and a snort, like a mischievous beast as he was, and career far down into some alley of the woodlot. Nothing was further from Sam's mind than to have any one of the troop taken until such season as should seem to him most befitting, and the exertions that he made were certainly most heroic like the sword of coeur de lion which always blazed in the front and thickest of the battle sam's palm-leaf was to be seen everywhere when there was the least danger that a horse could be caught there he would bear down full tilt shouting now for it cotch him cotch him in a way that would set everything to indiscriminate rout in a moment haley ran up and down and cursed and swore and stamped miscellaneously mr shelby in vain tried to shout directions from the balcony and Mrs. Shelby, from her chamber-window, alternately laughed and wondered, not without some inkling of what lay at the bottom of all this confusion. At last, about twelve o'clock, Sam appeared triumphant, mounted on Jerry, with Haley's horse by his side, reeking with sweat, but with flashing eyes and dilated nostrils, showing that the spirit of freedom had not yet entirely subsided. "'He's cotched!' he exclaimed triumphantly. "'If it hadn't been for me—' They might have bust themselves all on em, but I cotched em. You, growled Haley in an amiable mood, if it hadn't been for you, this never would have happened. Lord bless us, massa, said Sam, in a tone of the deepest concern, and me that has been racin' and chasin' till the sweat just pours off me. Well, well, said Haley, you've lost me near three hours with your cursed nonsense. Now let's be off, and have no more foolin'. Why, massa, said Sam, in a deprecating tone, I believe you mean to kill us all clar, horses and all. Here we are all just ready to drop down, and, and the critters all in a reek of sweat. Why, uh, Masser won't think of starting on now till arter dinner. Masser Hoss wants rubbin' down. See how he splashed himself? And Jerry limps, too. Don't think Missus would be willin' to have us start dis yar way, nohow. Lord bless you, Masser. We can catch up, if we do stop. Lizzie never was no great of a walker. Mrs. Shelby, who— greatly to her amusement, had overheard this conversation from the veranda, now resolved to do her part. She came forward, and, courteously expressing her concern for Haley's accident, pressed him to stay to dinner, saying that the cook should bring it on the table immediately. Thus, all things considered, Haley, with rather an equivocal grace, proceeded to the parlour, while Sam, rolling his eyes after him with unutterable meaning, proceeded gravely with the horses to the stable-yard. "'Did you see him, Andy?' "'Did yer see him?' said Sam, when he had got fairly beyond the shelter of the barn, and fastened the horse to a post. "'Oh, Lord, if it wasn't as good as a meetin' now, to see him a-dancin' and kickin' and swarin' at us! 
Didn't I hear him? Swar away, old fellow, says I to myself. Will you have your hoss now, or wait till you cotch him? Says I, Lord, Andy, I think I can see him now. And Sam and Andy leaned up against the barn and laughed to their heart's content. You oughter seen how mad he looked when I brought his hoss up. Lord, he'd killed me, if he durst to. And there I was a standin' as innocent and as humble. Lord, I seed you, said Andy. Ain't you an old hoss, Sam? Rather specs I am, said Sam. Did you see Mrs. upstairs at the winder? I seed her laughin'. I'm sure I was racin' so I didn't see nothin', said Andy. Well, you see, said Sam, proceeding gravely to wash down Haley's pony. I's quired what yer may call a habit of observation, Andy. It's a very important habit, Andy, and I commend yer to be cultivatin' it now yer young. I up that hind foot, Andy. You see, Andy, it's observation makes all difference in niggers. Didn't I see which way the wind blew this year mornin'? Didn't I see what Miss wanted, though she never'd let on? Dat ar's observation, Andy. I specs it's what you may call a faculty. Faculties is different in different peoples, but cultivation on em goes a great way. I guess if I hadn't helped your observation this morning, you wouldn't a seen your way so smart, said Andy. Andy, said Sam, you's a promisin' child. There ain't no matter of doubt. I thinks lots of you, Andy, and I don't feel no ways ashamed to take ideas from you. We oughtn't er overlook nobody, Andy, cause the smarter us gets tripped up sometimes. And so, Andy, Let's go up to the house now. I'll be bound Miss'll keep us an uncommon good bite this year time. End of chapter six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter seven. The Mother's Struggle. It is impossible to conceive of a human creature more wholly desolate and forlorn than Eliza when she turned her footsteps from Uncle Tom's cabin. Her husband's suffering and dangers, and the danger of her child, all blended in her mind, with a confused and stunning sense of the risk she was running in leaving the only home she had ever known, and cutting loose from the protection of a friend whom she loved and revered. Then there was the parting from every familiar object, the place where she had grown up, the trees under which she had played, the groves where she had walked many an evening in happier days, by the side of her young husband. Everything, as it lay in the clear, frosty starlight, seemed to speak reproachfully to her, and ask her whither could she go from a home like that. But stronger than all was maternal love wrought into a paroxysm of frenzy by the near approach of a fearful danger. Her boy was old enough to have walked by her side, and in an indifferent case she would only have led him by the hand. But now the bare thought of putting him out of her arms made her shudder, and she strained him to her bosom with a convulsive grasp as she went rapidly forward. The frosty ground creaked beneath her feet, and she trembled at the sound. Every quaking leaf and fluttering shadow sent the blood backward to her heart, and quickened her footsteps. She wondered within herself at the strength that seemed to be come upon her, for she felt the weight of her boy as if it had been a feather, and every flutter of fear seemed to increase the supernatural power that bore her on, while from her pale lips burst forth, in frequent ejaculations, the prayer to a friend above, "'Lord, help!' 
Lord, save me. If it were your Harry, mother, or your Willie, that were going to be torn from you by a brutal traitor to-morrow morning, if you had seen the man and heard that the papers were signed and delivered, and you had only from twelve o'clock till morning to make good your escape, how fast could you walk? How many miles could you make in those few brief hours, with the darling at your bosom, the little sleepy head on your shoulder, the small soft arms trustingly holding on to your neck? For the child slept. At first the novelty and alarm kept him waking, but his mother so hurriedly repressed every breath or sound, and so assured him that if he were only still she would certainly save him, that he clung quietly round her neck, only asking, as he found himself sinking to sleep, "'Mother, I don't need to keep awake, do I?' "'No, my darling, sleep if you want to. But, mother, if I do get asleep, you won't let him get me.' "'No, so may God help me,' said his mother, with a paler cheek and a brighter light in her large dark eyes. "'You're sure, ain't you, mother?' "'Yes, sure,' said the mother, in a voice that startled herself, for it seemed to her to come from a spirit within that was no part of her. And the boy dropped his little weary head on her shoulder, and was soon asleep. How the touch of those warm arms, the gentle breathings that came in her neck, seemed to add fire and spirit to her movements! It seemed to her as if strength poured into her in electric streams from every gentle touch and movement of the sleeping, confiding child. Sublime is the dominion of the mind of the body, that, for a time, can make flesh and nerve impregnable, and string the sinews like steel, so that the weak become so mighty. The boundaries of the farm, the grove, the woodlot, passed by her dizzily as she walked on. And still she went, leaving one familiar object after another, slacking not, pausing not, till reddening daylight found her many a long mile from all traces of any familiar objects upon the open highway. She had often been with her mistress to visit some connections in the little village of T, not far from the Ohio River, and knew the road well. To go thither, to escape across the Ohio River, were the first hurried outlines of her plan of escape. Beyond that she could only hope in God. When horses and vehicles began to move along the highway, with that alert perception peculiar to a state of excitement, and which seems to be a sort of inspiration, she became aware that her headlong pace and distracted air might bring on her remark and suspicion. She therefore put the boy on the ground, and, adjusting her dress and bonnet, she walked on at as rapid a pace as she thought consistent with the preservation of appearances. In her little bundle she had provided a store of cakes and apples, which she used as expedients for quickening the speed of the child, rolling the apples some yards before them, when the boy would run with all his might after it. And this ruse, often repeated, carried them over many a half-mile. After a while they came to a thick patch of woodland, through which murmured a clear brook. As the child complained of hunger and thirst, she climbed over the fence with him and sitting down behind a large rock which concealed them from the road, she gave him a breakfast out of her little package. The boy wondered and grieved that she could not eat, and when, putting his arms round her neck, he tried to wedge some of his cake into her mouth, it seemed to her that the rising in her throat would choke her. "'No, no, Harry, darling. Mother can't eat till you are safe. We must go on, on, till we come to the river.' And she hurried again into the road 
and again constrained herself to walk regularly and composedly forward. She was many miles past any neighborhood where she was personally known. If she should chance to meet any who knew her, she reflected that the well-known kindness of the family would be of itself a blind to suspicion, as making it an unlikely supposition that she could be a fugitive. But she was also so white as not to be known as of colored lineage without a critical survey, and her child was white also. It was much easier for her to pass on unsuspected. On this presumption she stopped at noon at a neat farmhouse to rest herself and buy some dinner for her child and self. For as the danger decreased with the distance, the supernatural tension of the nervous system lessened, and she found herself both weary and hungry. The good woman, kindly and gossiping, seemed rather pleased than otherwise with having somebody come in to talk with, and accepted, without examination, Eliza's statement that she was going on a little piece to spend a week with her friends, all which she hoped in her heart might prove strictly true. An hour before sunset she entered the village of T by the Ohio River, weary and footsore, but still strong in heart. Her first glance was at the river, which lay, like Jordan, between her and the Canaan of Liberty on the other side. It was now early spring, and the river was swollen and turbulent. Great cakes of floating ice were swinging heavily to and fro in the turbid waters. Owing to the peculiar form of the shore on the Kentucky side, the land bending far out into the water, the ice had been lodged and detained in great quantities, and the narrow channel which swept round the bend was full of ice piled one cake over another, thus forming a temporary barrier to the descending ice, which lodged and formed a great undulating raft, filling up the whole river, and extending almost to the Kentucky shore. Eliza stood for a moment, contemplating this unfavorable aspect of things, which she saw at once must prevent the usual ferry-boat from running, and then turned into a small public-house on the bank, to make a few inquiries. The hostess, who was busy in various fizzing and stewing operations over the fire, preparatory to an evening meal, stopped, with a fork in her hand, as Eliza's sweet and plaintive voice arrested her. "'What is it?' she said. "'Isn't there any ferry or boat that takes people over to B now?' she said. "'No, indeed,' said the woman. "'The boats have stopped running.' Eliza's look of dismay and disappointment struck the woman, and she said inquiringly, "'Maybe you're wanting to get over?' Anybody sick? You seem mighty anxious." "'I've got a child that's very dangerous,' said Eliza. "'I never heard of it till last night, and I've walked quite a piece to-day, in hopes to get to the ferry.' "'Well, now, that's unlucky,' said the woman, whose motherly sympathies were much aroused. "'I'm really concerned for you.' "'Solomon!' she called from the window towards a small back building. A man in leather apron and very dirty hands appeared at the door. "'I say, Sol,' said the woman, "'is that our man going to tote them barrels over to-night?' "'He said he should try, if twas any way prudent,' said the man. "'There's a man apiece down here that's going over with some truck this evening, if he does to. He'll be in here to supper to-night, so you'd better sit down and wait. That's a sweet little fellow,' added the woman, offering him a cake. But the child, wholly exhausted, cried with weariness. "'Poor fellow! He isn't used to walking, and I've hurried him on so,' said Eliza. "'Well, take him into this room,' said the woman, opening into a small bedroom, where stood a comfortable bed. Eliza laid the weary boy upon it, and laid his hands in hers, till he was fast asleep. 
For her there was no rest. As a fire in her bones, the thought of the pursuer urged her on, and she gazed with longing eyes on the sullen, surging waters that lay between her and liberty. Here we must take our leave of her for the present, to follow the course of her pursuers. Though Mrs. Shelby had promised that the dinner should be hurried on table, yet it was soon seen, as the thing has often been seen before, that it required more than one to make a bargain. So, although the order was fairly given out in Haley's hearing, and carried to Aunt Chloe by at least half a dozen juvenile messengers, that dignitary only gave certain very gruff snorts and tosses of her head, and went on with every operation in an unusually leisurely and circumstantial manner. For some singular reason an impression seemed to reign among the servants, generally, that Mrs. would not be particularly disobliged by delay and it was wonderful what a number of counter-accidents occurred constantly to retard the course of things. One luckless white contrived to upset the gravy, and then gravy had to be got up de novo, with due care and formality. Aunt Chloe, watching and stirring with dogged precision, answering shortly to all suggestions of haste, that she warn't a-goin' to have a raw gravy on the table to help nobody's catchings. One tumbled down with the water and had to go to the spring for more, and another precipitated the butter into the path of events, and there was from time to time giggling news brought into the kitchen that Massa Haley was mighty oneasy, and that he couldn't sit in his cheer no ways, but was a-talkin' and stalkin' to the winders and through the porch. "'Saves him right,' said Aunt Chloe, indignantly. "'He'll get was nor oneasy one of these days, if he don't mend his ways. His master'll be sending for him, and then see how he'll look. He'll go to torment, and no mistake," said little Jake. "'He deserves it,' said Aunt Chloe grimly. "'He's broke a many, many, many hearts, I tell you all,' she said, stopping, with a fork uplifted in her hands. "'It's like what Master George reads in Revelations. Souls a-callin' under the altar, and a-callin' on the Lord for vengeance on sich, and by and by the Lord he'll hear em, so he will.' Aunt Chloe, who was much revered in the kitchen, was listened to with open mouth, and the dinner being now fairly sent in, the whole kitchen was at leisure to gossip with her, and to listen to her remarks. "'Sitch'll be burnt up forever, and no mistake, won't there?' said Andy. "'I'd be glad to see it, I'll be bound,' said little Jake. "'Chillin,' said a voice that made them all start. It was Uncle Tom, who had come in, and stood listening to the conversation at the door. "'Chillin,' he said, "'I'm afeard you don't know what you're saying.' Forever is a dreadful word, chillin'. It's awful to think on't. You oughtn't wish that or to any human critter. We wouldn't to anybody but the soul-drivers, said Andy. Nobody can help wishing it to them. They so awfully wicked. Don't nature herself kinder cry out on em, said Aunt Chloe. Don't they tear der suckin' baby right off of his mother's breast and sell him and der little children as is crying and holdin' on by her clothes? Don't they pull em off and sells em? "'Don't they tear wife and husband apart?' said Aunt Chloe, beginning to cry. "'When it's just taken the very life on em, and all the while does they feel one bit, don't they drink and smoke and take it uncommon easy? Lord, if the devil don't get them, what's he good for?' And Aunt Chloe covered her face with her checkered apron, and began to sob in good earnest. "'Pray for them that spitefully use you, the good book says,' says Tom. "'Pray for em,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Lor, it's tough. I can't pray for him.' "'It's nature, Chloe, and nature's strong,' said Tom. "'But the Lord's grace is stronger. Besides, 
You ought to think what an awful state a poor critter's soul's in that'll do them our things. You ought to thank God that you ain't like him, Chloe. I'm sure I'd rather be sold ten thousand times over than to have all that our poor critter's got to answer for. So I'd a heap, said Jake. Lord, shouldn't we cotch it, Andy? Andy shrugged his shoulders and gave an acquiescent whistle. I'm glad Massa didn't go off this morning as he looked to, said Tom. That ar hurt me more than sellin' it did. Maybe it might have been natural for him, but it would have come desperate hard on me, as has known him for my baby. But I've seen Master, and I begin to feel sort of reconciled to the Lord's will now. Master couldn't help hisself. He did right, but I'm afeard things will be kind of going to rack when I'm gone. Master can't be expected to be prying round everywhere as I've done, and keeping up all at the ends. The boys all means well, but they's powerful careless. That art troubles me. The bell here rang, and Tom was summoned to the parlor. Tom, said his master kindly, I want you to notice that I give this gentleman bonds to forfeit a thousand dollars if you are not on the spot when he wants you. He's going to-day to look after his other business, and you can have the day to yourself. Go anywhere you like, boy. Thank you, massa, said Tom. And mind yourself, said the trader, and don't come it over your master with any of your nigger tricks. For I'll take every cent out of him if you ain't thar. If he'd hear to me, he wouldn't trust any on you, slippery as eels. Massa, said Tom, and he stood very straight. I was just six years old when old missus put you into my arms, and you wasn't a year old. Thar, says she, Tom, that's to be your young massa. Take good care of him, says she. And now I just ask you, massa, have I ever broke word to you or gone contrary to you, specially since I was a Christian? Mr. Shelby was fairly overcome, and the tears rose to his eyes. "'My good boy,' said he, "'the Lord knows you say but the truth, and if I was able to help it, all the world shouldn't buy you.' "'And sure as I am a Christian woman,' said Mrs. Shelby, "'you shall be redeemed as soon as I can bring together means. Sir,' she said to Haley, "'take good account of who you sell him to, and let me know.' "'Lor, yes, for that matter,' said the trader. "'I may bring him up in a year, and not much the worse for wear, and trade him back.' "'I'll trade with you, then, and make it for your advantage,' said Mrs. Shelby. "'Of course,' said the trader. "'All's equal with me. Let's trade him up as down, so I does a good business. All I want is a living, you know, ma'am. That's all any of us wants, I suppose.' Mr. and Mrs. Shelby both felt annoyed and degraded by the familiar impudence of the trader and yet both saw the absolute necessity of putting a constraint on their feelings. The more hopelessly sordid and insensible he appeared, the greater became Mrs. Shelby's dread of his succeeding in recapturing Eliza and her child, and, of course, the greater her motive for detaining him by every female artifice. She therefore graciously smiled, assented, chatted familiarly, and did all she could to make time pass imperceptibly. At two o'clock Sam and Andy brought the horses up to the posts, apparently greatly refreshed and invigorated by the scamper of the morning. Sam was there, new-oiled from dinner, with an abundance of zealous and ready officiousness. As Haley approached, he was boasting in flourishing style to Andy of the evident and eminent success of the operation, now that he had fairly come to it. "'Your master, I suppose, don't keep no dogs,' said Haley thoughtfully, as he prepared to mount. "'Heaps of em,' said Sam triumphantly. "'There's Bruno. He's roar. And, besides that, about every nigger of us keeps a pup of some nature or other.' "'Poe,' said Haley, and he said something else, too, with regard to the said dogs, at which Sam muttered, 
I don't see no use cussing on him no way. But your master don't keep no dogs. I pretty much know he don't, for tracking out niggers. Sam knew exactly what he meant, but he kept on a look of earnest and desperate simplicity. Our dogs all smells round considerable sharp. I spect they's the kind, though. They, they ain't never had no practice. They's fire dogs, though, at most anything, if you'd get em started. Here, Bruno, he called, whistling to the lumbering Newfoundland who came pitching tumultuously towards them. You go hang, said Haley, getting up. Come, tumble up now. Sam tumbled up accordingly, dexterously contriving to tickle Andy as he did so, which occasioned Andy to split out into a laugh, greatly to Haley's indignation, who made a cut at him with his riding-whip. "'I'm astonished at you, Andy,' said Sam, with awful gravity. "'This here is serious business, Andy. You mustn't be a-making game. This here ain't no way to help Massa.' "'I shall take the straight road to the river,' said Haley decidedly, after they had come to the boundaries of the estate. I know the way of all of them. They make tracks for the underground. Sartin, said Sam, that's the idea. Massa Haley hits the thing right in the middle. Now there's two roads to the river, the dirt road and der pike. Which Massa mean to take? Andy looked up innocently at Sam, surprised at hearing this new geographical fact, but instantly confirmed what he said by a vehement reiteration. Cause, said Sam, I'd rather be clad to imagine that Lizzie take dirt road, being its least travelled. Haley, notwithstanding that he was a very old bird, and naturally inclined to be suspicious of chaff, was rather brought up by this view of the case. "'If you weren't both on your such cussed liars now,' he said contemplatively, as he pondered a moment. The pensive, reflective tone in which this was spoken appeared to amuse Andy prodigiously, and he drew a little behind, and shook so as apparently to run a great risk of falling off his horse while Sam's face was immovably composed into the most doleful gravity. "'Course,' said Sam, "'Massa can do as he'd rather. Go de straight road, if Massa thinks best. It's all one to us. Now, when I study upon it, I think the straight road de best, deridedly.' "'She would naturally go a lonesome way,' said Haley, thinking aloud, and not minding Sam's remark. "'There ain't no sayin', said Sam. Gals is peculiar. They never do nothin' you thinks they will. More generally the contrary.' Gals is naturally made contrary, and so, if you think they's gone one road, it is sartin you'd better go t'other, and then you'll be sure to find em. Now, my private opinion is, Lizzie took their road, so I think we'd better take the straight one." This profound generic view of the female sex did not seem to dispose Haley particularly to the straight road, and he announced decidedly that he should go the other, and asked Sam when they should come to it. "'A little piece ahead,' said Sam giving a wink to Andy with the eye which was on Andy's side of the head, and he added gravely, "'But I've studied on the matter, and I'm quite clar we ought not to go that dar away. i never been over it no way. It's despite lonesome, and, and we might lose our way. Where we'd come to, the Lord only knows.' "'Nevertheless,' said Haley, "'I shall go that way. Now that I think on it, I think I hear em tell that that our road was all fenced up and down by their creek. And thar, ain't it, Andy?' Andy wasn't certain. He'd only hearn tell about that road, but never been over it. In short, he was strictly noncommittal. Haley, accustomed to strike the balance of probabilities between lies of greater or lesser magnitude, thought that it lay in favor of the dirt road aforesaid. The mention of the thing he thought he perceived was involuntarily on Sam's part at first, and his confused attempts to dissuade him he set down to a desperate lying on second thoughts as being unwilling to implicate Liza. When, therefore, Sam indicated the road, 
Haley plunged briskly into it, followed by Sam and Andy. Now the road, in fact, was an old one, that had formerly been a thoroughfare to the river, but abandoned for many years after the laying of the new pike. It was open for about an hour's ride, and after that it was cut across by various farms and fences. Sam knew this fact perfectly well. Indeed, the road had been so long closed up that Andy had never heard of it. He therefore rode along with an air of dutiful submission, only groaning and vociferating occasionally, that "'Twas desperate rough and bad for Jerry's foot." "'Now, I just give your warning," said Haley. "'I know yer. Yer won't get me to turn off this road with all your fussin', so you shut up." "'Massa will go on his way,' said Sam, with rueful submission, at the same time winking most portentously to Andy, whose delight was now very near the explosive point. Sam was in wonderful spirits, professed to keep a very brisk lookout, at one time exclaiming that he saw a gal's bonnet on the top of some distant eminence, or calling to Andy, "'If that thar wasn't Lizzie down the hollow!' always making these exclamations in some rough or craggy part of the road, where the sudden quickening of speed was a special inconvenience to all parties concerned, and thus keeping Haley in a state of constant commotion. After riding about an hour in this way, the whole party made a precipitate and tumultuous descent into a barnyard belonging to a large farming establishment. Not a soul was in sight, all the hands being employed in the fields. But as the barn stood conspicuously and plainly square across the road, it was evident that their journey in that direction had reached a decided finale. "'Want that ar what I tell you, master?' said Sam, with an air of injured innocence. "'How does strange gentlemen speck to know more about a country than the natives born and raised?' "'You rascal!' said Haley. "'You knew all about this!' "'Didn't I tell you I knowed, and you wouldn't believe me? I telled Master twas all shit up and fenced up, and, and I didn't speck we could get through. And he heard me.' It was all too true to be disputed, and the unlucky man had to pocket his wrath with the best grace he was able, and all three faced to the right about, and took up their line of march for the highway. In consequence of all the various delays, it was about three-quarters of an hour after Eliza had laid her child to sleep in the village tavern that the party came riding into the same place. Eliza was standing by the window, looking out in another direction, when Sam's quick eye caught a glimpse of her. Haley and Andy were two yards behind. At this crisis Sam contrived to have his hat blown off, and uttered a loud and characteristic ejaculation, which startled her at once. She drew suddenly back, the whole train swept by the window, round to the front door. A thousand lives seemed to be concentrated in that one moment to Eliza. Her room opened by a side door to the river. She caught her child, sprang down the steps towards it. The trader caught a full glimpse of her just as she was disappearing down the bank, and throwing himself from his horse, and calling loudly on Sam and Andy, he was after her like a hound after a deer. In that dizzy moment her feet to her scarce seemed to touch the ground, and a moment brought her to the water's edge. Right on behind they came, and nerved with strength such as God gives only to the desperate, with one wild cry and flying leap she vaulted sheer over the turbid current by the shore, on to the raft of ice beyond. It was a desperate leap, impossible to anything but madness and despair, and Haley, Sam, and Andy instinctively cried out, and lifted up their hands as she did it. The huge green fragment of ice on which she alighted pitched and creaked as her weight came on it, but she stayed there not a moment. With wild cries and desperate energy she leapt to another and still another cake, stumbling, leaping, slipping, springing upwards again. Her shoes are gone, her stockings cut from her feet, while blood marked every step, 
but she saw nothing, felt nothing, till dimly, as in a dream, she saw the Ohio side, and a man helping her up the bank. "'You're a brave gal now, whoever you are,' said the man with an oath. Eliza recognized the voice and face for a man who owned a farm not far from her old home. "'Oh, Mr. Symes, save me! Do save me! Do hide me!' said Eliza. "'Why, what's this?' said the man. "'Why, if taint Shelby's gal!' "'My child, this boy, he'd sold him. There is his master,' said she, pointing to the Kentucky shore. "'Oh, Mr. Symes, you've got a little boy.' "'So I have,' said the man, as he roughly but kindly drew her up the steep bank. "'Besides, you're a right brave gal. I like grit, wherever I see it.' When they had gained the top of the bank, the man paused. "'I'd be glad to do something for you,' said he. "'But then there's nowhere I could take you. The best I can do is to tell you to go thar,' said he, pointing to a large white house which stood by itself, off the main street of the village. "'Go thar. They're kind folks. There's no kind of danger, but they'll help you. They're up to all of that sort of thing.' "'The Lord bless you,' said Eliza earnestly. "'No occasion, no occasion in the world,' said the man. "'What I've done's of no account.' "'Oh, surely, sir, you won't tell anyone?' "'Go to thunder, gal. What do you take a feller for?' "'In course not,' said the man. "'Come now, go along like a likely sensible gal as you are. You've aren't your liberty, and you shall have it for all of me.' The woman folded her child to her bosom and walked firmly and swiftly away. The man stood and looked after her. "'Shelby now maybe won't think this yard the most neighborly thing in the world, but what's a feller to do? If he catches one of my gals in the same fix, he's welcome to pay back.' Somehow I never could see no kind of critter a strivin' and pantin' and trying to clear themselves with the dogs after em and go agin em. Besides, I don't see no kind of occasion for me to be hunter and catcher for other folks and either." So spoke this poor, heathenish Kentuckian, who had not been instructed in his constitutional relations, and consequently was betrayed into acting in a sort of Christianized manner, which, if he had been better situated and more enlightened, he would not have been left to do. Haley had stood a perfectly amazed spectator of the scene, till Eliza had disappeared up the bank, when he turned a blank, inquiring look on Sam and Andy. "'That ar was a tolerable fair stroke of business,' said Sam. "'The gal's got seven devils in her, I believe,' said Haley. "'How like a wildcat she jumped!' "'Wild well, now,' said Sam, scratching his head. "'I hope Mass'll excuse us trying down our road. Don't think I feel spry enough for dat ar no way." And Sam gave a hoarse chuckle. "'You laugh,' said the trader, with a growl. "'Lord bless you, Massa, I couldn't help it now,' said Sam, giving way to the long, pent-up delight of his soul. "'She looks so curious, a-leapin' and springin' ice up-crackin' only to hear her plump, her cur-chunk, cur-splash-spring. Lord, how she goes it!' And Sam and Andy laughed till the tears rolled down their cheeks. "'I'll make your laugh to the side of your mouth,' said the trader, laying about their heads with his riding-whip. Both ducked and ran, shouting up the bank, and were on their horses before he was up. "'Good evening, Massa,' said Sam, with much gravity. "'I very much spect Mrs. be anxious about Jerry. Massa Haley won't want us no longer. Mrs. wouldn't hear of our riding the critters over Lizzie's bridge to-night.' And with a facetious poke into Andy's ribs, he started off, followed by the latter, at full speed their shouts of laughter coming faintly on the wind. End of chapter 7 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 8 
Eliza's Escape Eliza made her desperate retreat across the river just in the dusk of twilight. The gray mist of evening, rising slowly from the river, enveloped her as she disappeared up the bank, and the swollen current and floundering masses of ice presented a hopeless barrier between her and her pursuer. Haley therefore slowly and discontentedly returned to the little tavern, to ponder further what was to be done. The woman opened to him the door of a little parlour, covered with a rag carpet, where stood a table with a very shining black oilcloth, sundry lank, high-backed wood chairs, with some plaster images in resplendent colours on the mantel-shelf, above a very dimly smoking grate. A long hardwood settle extended its uneasy length by the chimney, and here Haley sat him down to meditate on the instability of human hopes and happiness in general. "'What did I want with a little cuss now?' he said to himself. "'That I should have got myself treat like a coon as I am this here way.' And Haley relieved himself by repeating over a not very select litany of imprecations on himself, which, though there was the best possible reason to consider them as true, we shall, as a matter of taste, omit. He was startled by the loud and dissonant voice of a man who was apparently dismounting at the door. He hurried to the window. "'By the land! If this hour ain't the nearest now to what I've heard folks call Providence,' said Haley, "'I do believe that thar's Tom Locker!' Haley hastened out. Standing by the bar in the corner of the room was a brawny, muscular man, full six feet in height and broad in proportion. He was dressed in a coat of buffalo-skin, made with the hair outward, which gave him a shaggy and fierce appearance, perfectly in keeping with the whole air of his physiognomy. In the head and face every organ and lineament, expressive of brutal and unhesitating violence, was in a state of the highest possible development. Indeed, could our readers fancy a bulldog come on to man's estate, and walking about in a hat and coat, they would have no unapt idea of the general style and effect of his physique. He was accompanied by a travelling companion, in many respects an exact contrast to himself. He was short and slender, lithe and cat-like in his motions, and had a peering, mousing expression about his keen black eyes, with which every feature of his face seemed sharpened into sympathy. His thin, long nose ran out as if it was eager to bore into the nature of things in general. His sleek, thin, black hair was stuck eagerly forward, and all his motions and evolutions expressed a dry, cautious acuteness. The great man poured out a big tumbler half full of raw spirits, and gulped it down without a word. The little man stood tiptoe, and putting his head first to one side and then the other, and snuffing considerably in the direction of the various bottles, ordered at last a mint julep, in a thin and quivering voice, and with an air of great circumspection. When poured out, he took it, and looked at it with a sharp, complacent air, like a man who thinks he has done about the right thing, and hit the nail on the head, and proceeded to dispose of it in short and well-advised sips. "'Well, now, who'd have thought this yar luck had come to me? Why, Lucker, how are you?' said Haley, coming forward and extending his hand to the big man. "'The devil!' was the civil reply. "'What brought you here, Haley?' The mousing man, who bore the name of Marks, instantly stopped his sipping, and, poking his head forward, looked shrewdly on the new acquaintance, as a cat sometimes looks at a moving dry leaf, or some other possible object of pursuit. "'I say, Tom, this air is the luckiest thing in the world. I'm in a devil of a hobble, and you must help me out.' Eh? 
"'Ah, like enough,' grunted his complacent acquaintance. "'A body may be pretty sure of that when you're glad to see him. Something to be made off of him. Uh, what's the blow now?' Uh, "'You've got a friend here,' said Haley, looking doubtfully at Marks. "'Partner, perhaps?' "'Yes, I have. Here, Marks. Here's that our fellow that I was in with in Natchez.' "'Shall be pleased with his acquaintance.' said Marks, thrusting out a long, thin hand like a raven's claw. "'Mr. Haley, I believe?' "'The same, sir,' said Haley. "'And now, gentlemen, seen as we've met so happily, I think I'll stand up to a small matter of a treat in this here parlor.' "'So now, old coon,' said he to the man at the bar, "'get us hot water and sugar and cigars, and plenty of the real stuff, and we'll have a blowout.' Behold, then, the candles lighted, the fire stimulated to the burning point in the grate, and our three worthies seated round a table, well spread with all the accessories to good fellowship enumerated before. Haley began a pathetic recital of his peculiar troubles. Locker shut up his mouth and listened to him with gruff and surly attention. Marks, who was anxiously and with much fidgeting compounding a tumbler of punch to his own peculiar taste, occasionally looked up from his employment, and, poking his sharp nose and chin almost into Haley's face, gave the most earnest heed to the whole narrative. The conclusion of it appeared to amuse him extremely, for he shook his shoulders and sides in silence, and perked up his thin lips with an air of great internal enjoyment. "'So, then, you're fairly sewed up, ain't you?' he said. <laughs> "'It's neatly done, too.' "'This yar young'un business makes lots of troubles in the trade,' said Haley dolefully. "'If we could get a breed of gals that didn't care now for their young'uns,' said Marks, "'I tell you, I think it would be about the greatest modern improvement I knows on.' And Marks patronized his joke by a quiet introductory sniggle. "'Just so,' said Haley. "'I never couldn't see into it. Young'uns is heaps of trouble to em. One would think now they'd be glad to get clar on em, but they aren't. And the more trouble a young'un is, and the more good-for-nothing as gentle thing, the tighter they sticks to em. "'Well, Mr. Haley,' said Marks, "'est pass the hot water. Yes, sir, you say est uh, what I feel that I'll have. Now, I bought a gal once, when I was in the trade. A tight, likely wench she was, too, and quite considerable but smart. And she had a young'un that was miserable sickly. It had a crooked back, or something or other. And I just gin to way to a man that thought he'd take his chance raisin' on't, being it didn't cost nothing. Never thought, you know, of the gal's taking on about it, but, lor, you ought to see how she went on. Why, really, she did seem to me to valley the child more cause twas sickly and cross and plagued her, and she weren't making believe, neither. Cried about it, she did, and loped around, as if she'd lost every friend she had. It really was droll to think on't. Lord, there ain't no end to women's notions. Well, just so with me, said Haley. Last summer, down on Red River, I got a gal traded off on me, with a likely-looking child enough, and his eyes looked as bright as yourn. But come to look, I found him stone-blind. Fact, he was stone-blind. Well, you see, I thought there weren't no harm in my just passing him along, and not saying nothing. And I'd got him nicely swapped off for a keg of whiskey. But come to get him away from the gal, she was just like a tiger. So, twas before we started, and I hadn't got my gang chained up. So what should she do but ups on a cotton bale like a cat, catches a knife from one of the deckhands, and I tell you, she made all fly for a minute till she saw twas no use, and she just turns round and pitches head first, young and all, into the river. Went down, plump, never rise. 
Bah! said Tom Locker, who had listened to these stories with ill-repressed disgust. Shiftless, both on you. My gals don't cut on no such shines, I tell you. Indeed. How do you help it? said Marks briskly. Help it? Why, I buys a gal, and if she's got a young'un to be sold, I just walks up and puts my fist to her face and says, Look here now, if you give me one word out of your head, I'll smash your face in. I won't hear one word, not the beginning of a word, I says to him. This yer young'un's mine, and not yourn, and you've no kind of business with it. I'm going to sell it first chance. Mind you don't cut up none of your shines about it, or I'll make you wish you'd never been born. I tell you, they sees it ain't no play when I gets hold. I makes em as wedged as fishes, and if one on em begins and gives a yelp, why— And Mr. Locker brought down his fist with a thump that fully explained the hiatus. That are's what you may call emphasis, said Marks, poking Haley in the side, and going into another small giggle. Ain't Tom peculiar? <laughs> I say, Tom, I spect you make em understand, for all niggers' heads is woolly. They don't never have no doubt o' your meanin', Tom. If you ain't the devil, Tom, use his twin brother, I'll say that for you. Tom received the compliment with becoming modesty, and began to look as affable as was consistent, as John Bunyan says, with his doggish nature. Haley, who had been imbibing very freely of the staple of the evening, began to feel a sensible elevation and enlargement of his moral faculties, a phenomenon not unusual with gentlemen of the serious and reflective turn under similar circumstances. "'Well, now, Tom,' he said, "'you really is too bad, as I always have told you. You know, Tom, you and I used to talk over these yar matters down Natchez, and I used to prove to you that we made full as much and was as well off for this yar world by treatin' on em well, besides keepin' a better chance for comin' in the kingdom at last, when worse comes to worst, and there ain't nothin' else left to get, you know.' "'Bah!' said Tom. "'Don't I know?' Don't make me too sick with any yar stuff. My stomach is a little riled now." And Tom drank half a glass of raw brandy. "'I say,' said Haley, and leaning back in his chair and gesturing impressively, "'I'll say this now. I always meant to drive my trade so as to make money on't fust and foremost as much as any man. But then trade ain't everything, and money ain't everything, cause we's all got souls. I don't care now who hears me say it and I think a cussed sight on it, so I may as well come out with it. I believe in religion, and one of these days, when I got matters tight and snug, I calculates to tend to my soul in them are matters. And so what's the use of doing any more wickedness than's really necessary? Don't seem to me it's all prudent." "'Tend to your soul,' repeated Tom contemptuously. "'Take a bright look-out to find a soul in you. Save yourself any care on that score. If the devil sifts you through a hair sieve, he won't find one. "'Why, Tom, you're cross,' said Haley. "'Why can't you take it pleasant now, when a feller's talkin' for your good?' "'Stop that our jaw yearn there,' said Tom gruffly. "'I can stand most any talkin' yearn but your pious talk. That kills me right up. After all, what's the odds between me and you? Tant that you care one bit more, or have a bit more feelin', it's clean, sheer dog-meanness.' Want to cheat the devil and save your own skin. Don't I see through it? And your gettin' religion, as you call it, arter all, is too pison mean for any creeter. Run up a bill with the devil all your life, and then sneak out when pay-time comes. Bob! Come, come, gentlemen, I say, this isn't business, said Marks. There's different ways, you know, of looking at all subjects. 
Mr. Haley is a very nice man, no doubt, and has his own conscience. And Tom, you have your ways, and very good ones, too, Tom. But quarreling, you know, won't answer no kind of purpose. Let's go to business. Now, Mr. Haley, what is it? You want us to undertake to catch this yar gal? The gal's no matter mine. She's Shelby's. It's only the boy. I was a fool for buying the monkey. You're generally a fool, said Tom gruffly. Come now, Locker. None of your huffs, said Marks, licking his lips. You see, Mr. Haley's putting us in a way of a good job, I reckon. Just hold still. These yer arrangements is my forte. This yer gal, Mr. Haley, how is she? What is she? Well, white and handsome, well brought up. I gin Shelby eight hundred or a thousand, and then made well on her. White and handsome, well brought up, said Marks, his sharp eyes, nose, and mouth all alive with enterprise. Look here now, Locker, a beautiful opening. We'll do a business here on our own account. We does the catchin', the boy, of course, goes to Mr. Haley. We takes the gal to Orleans to speculate on. Ain't it beautiful? Tom, whose great heavy mouth had stood ajar during this communication, now suddenly snapped it together as a big dog closes on a piece of meat, and seemed to be digesting the idea at his leisure. You see, said Marks to Haley, stirring his punch as he did so, you see, we has justices convenient at all pants along shore. That does up any little jobs in our line quite reasonable. Tom, he does the knockin' down, and that are, and I come in all dressed up, shinin' boots. Everything first chop when the swearin's to be done. You ought to see now, said Marks, in a glow of professional pride, how I can tone it off. One day I'm Mr. Twickham from New Orleans. Another day I'm just come from my plantation on Pearl River, where I work seven hundred niggers. Then again I come out a distant relation of Henry Clay, or some old cock in Kentuck. Talents is different, you know. Now, Tom's roarer when there's any thumpin' or fightin' to be done, but at line he ain't good, Tom ain't. You see, it, it don't come natural to him. But, Lord, if thar's a feller in the country that can swear to anything and everything, and put in all the circumstances, and flourishes with a long face, and carrot through better than I can, why, I'd like to see him, that's all. I believe in my heart I could get along and snake through even if justices were more particular than they is. Sometimes I rather wish they was more particular. Twould be a heap more relishin' if they was. More fun, you know." Tom Locker, who, as we have made it appear, was a man of slow thoughts and movements, here interrupted Marks by bringing his heavy fist down on the table, so as to make it all ring again. "'It'll do,' he said. "'Lord bless you, Tom. You needn't break all the glasses,' said Marks. "'Save your fist for the time of need.' "'But, gentlemen, ain't I to come in for a share of the profits?' said Haley. "'Ain't it enough we catch the boy for you?' said Locker. "'What do you want?' "'Well,' said Haley, "'if I gives you the job it's worth something, say, ten percent on the profits, expenses paid.' "'Now,' said Locker, with a tremendous oath, and striking the table with his heavy fist, "'don't I know you, Dan Haley?' Don't you think to come it over me? Suppose Marks and I have taken up the catchin' trade, just to accommodate gentlemen like you, and get nothin' for ourselves. Not by a long chalk. We'll have the gal out and out, and you keep quiet, or you see we'll have both. What's to hinder? Hadn't you showed us the game? It's as free to us as you, I hope. If you or Shelby wants to catch us, look where the partridges was last year. If you find them or us, you're quite welcome. Oh, well, certainly, just let it go at that, said Haley, alarmed. You catch the boy for the job. Y'allers did trade fire with me, Tom, and was up to your word. 
"'You know that,' said Tom. "'I don't pretend none of your snivelling ways, but I won't lie in my counts with the devil himself. What I says I'll do, I will do. You know that, Dan Haley.' "'Just so, just so. I said so, Tom,' said Haley. "'And if you'd only promise to have the boy for me in a week, at any point you'll name, that's all I want.' "'But it ain't all I want, by a long jump,' said Tom. "'You don't think I did business with you down Natchez for nothing, Haley. I've learned to hold an eel when I catch him. You've got to fork over fifty dollars flat down, or this child don't start a peg. I know you're.' Why, when you have a job in hand that may bring a clean profit of somewhere about a thousand or sixteen hundred, why, Tom, you're on unreasonable, said Haley. Yes, and hasn't we business booked for five weeks to come, all we can do? And suppose we leaves all, and goes to bushwhacking round out of your young'uns, and finally doesn't catch the gal, and gal's allers is the devil to catch. What's then? Would you pay us a cent, would you? I think I see you doing it, Hug. <laughs> no, no, flap down your fifty. If we get the job and it pays, I'll hand it back. If we don't, it's for our trouble. That's fire, ain't it, Marks? Certainly, certainly, said Marks, with a conciliatory tone. It's only a retaining fee, you see. <laughs> we lawyers, you know. Well, we must all keep good-natured. Keep easy, you know. Tom'll have the boy for you, anywhere you'll name. Won't you, Tom? If I find the young'un, I'll bring him on to Cincinnati and leave him at Granny Belcher's on the landing," said Locker. Marks had got from his pocket a greasy pocket-book, and taking a long paper from thence he sat down, and fixing his keen black eyes on it, began mumbling over its contents. Barnes, Shelby County, boy, Jim, three hundred dollars for him, dead or alive. Edwards, Dick and Lucy, man and wife, six hundred dollars, wench Polly and two children, six hundred for her or her head. I'm just running over our business to see if we can take up this yarl handily. Locker, he said, after a pause, we must set Adams and Springer on the track of these are. They've been booked some time. They'll charge too much, said Tom. I'll manage that are. They's young in the business, and must spect to work cheap, said Marks, as he continued to read. There's three on em easy cases, cause all you got to do is to shoot em or swear they shot. They couldn't, of course, charge much for that. Them other cases, he said, folding the paper, will bear puttin' off a spell. So now let's come to the particulars. Now, Mr. Haley, you saw this our gal when she landed? To be sure, plain as I see you. And a man helpin' on her up the bank, said Locker. To be sure I did. Most likely, said Marks. She's took in somewhere. But uh, where's a question? Tom, what do you say? We must cross the river to-night, no mistake, said Tom. But there's no boat about, said Marks. The ice is running awfully, Tom. Ain't it dangerous? Don't know nothing about that. Only it's got to be done, said Tom decidedly. Dear me, said Marks, fidgeting. It'll be, I say, he said, walking to the window. It's dark as a wolf's mouth, and Tom— The long and short is you're scared, Marks. But I can't help that. You've got to go. Suppose you want to lie by a day or two till the gal's been carried on the underground line up to Sandusky or so before you start. Oh no, I ain't a grain frayed, said Marks. Only Only what? said Tom. Well, about the boat. You see, there ain't any boat. I heard the woman say there was one coming along this evening, and that a man was going to cross over in it. Neck or nothing, we must go with him, said Tom. I suppose you got good dogs, said Haley. First rate, said Marks. But what's the use? You ain't got nothing of hers to smell on. 
"'Yes, I have,' said Haley triumphantly. "'Here's her shawl she left on the bed in a hurry. She left her bonnet, too.' "'That ours lucky,' said Locker. "'Fork over.' "'Though the dogs might damage the gal if they come on her unwires,' said Haley. "'That ours a consideration,' said Marks. "'Our dogs tore a feller half to pieces once down in Mobile before we could get em off.' "'Well, you see, for this sort that's to be sold for their looks, uh, that I won't answer, you see,' said Haley. "'I do see,' said Marks. "'Besides, if she's got took in, tain't no go neither. Dogs is no account in these are up states where these critters get carried. Of course you can't get on their track. They only does down in plantations where niggers, when they runs, has to do their own running and don't get no help.' "'Well,' said Locker, who had just stepped out to the bar to make some inquiries, they say the man's come with the boat. So, Marks—' That worthy cast a rueful look at the comfortable quarters he was leaving, but slowly rose to obey. After exchanging a few words of further arrangement, Haley, with visible reluctance, handed over the fifty dollars to Tom, and the worthy trio separated for the night. If any of our refined and Christian readers object to the society into which this scene introduces them, let us beg them to begin and conquer their prejudices in time. The catching business, we beg to remind them, is rising to the dignity of a lawful and patriotic profession. If all the broad land between Mississippi and the Pacific becomes one great market for bodies and souls, and human property retains the locomotive tendencies of this nineteenth century, the trader and catcher may yet be among our aristocracy. While this scene was going on at the tavern, Sam and Andy, in a state of high felicitation, pursued their way home. Sam was in the highest possible feather, and expressed his exultation by all sorts of supernatural howls and ejaculations, by divers odd motions and contortions of his whole system. Sometimes he would sit backward, with his face to the horse's tail and sides, and then, with a whoop and a somerset, come right side up in his place again and, drawing on a grave face, begin to lecture Andy in high-sounding tones for laughing and playing the fool. Anon, slapping his sides with his arms, he would burst forth in peals of laughter that made the old woods ring as they passed. With all these evolutions he contrived to keep the horses up to the top of their speed until, between ten and eleven, their heels resounded on the gravel at the end of the balcony. Mrs. Shelby flew to the railings. "'Is that you, Sam? Where are they?' Master Haley's arrestin' at the tavern. He's dreffle fatigued, missus. And Eliza, Sam? Well, she's clear across Jordan, as a body may say, in the land of Canaan. Why, Sam, what do you mean? said Mrs. Shelby, breathless, and almost faint, as the possible meaning of these words came over her. Well, missus, the Lord, he preserves his own. Lizzie's done gone over the river into Ohio, as markably as if the Lord took her over in a chariot of fire and two hosses. Sam's vein of piety was always uncommonly fervent in his mistress's presence, and he made great capital of scriptural figures and images. "'Come up here, Sam,' said Mr. Shelby, who had followed on to the veranda, "'and tell your mistress what she wants.' "'Come, come, Emily,' said he, passing his arm round her. "'You were cold and all in a shiver. You allow yourself to feel too much.' "'Feel too much? Am I not a woman, a mother? Are we not both responsible to God for this poor girl?' "'My God! Lay not this sin to our charge!' "'What sin, Emily? You see yourself that we have only done what we were obliged to.' "'There's an awful feeling of guilt about it, though,' said Mrs. Shelby. "'I can't reason it away.' 
"'Here, Andy, you nigger, be alive,' called Sam under the veranda. "'Take these yar horses to der barn. Don't you hear massa callin'?' And Sam soon appeared, palm-leaf in hand, at the parlor door. "'Now, Sam, tell us distinctly how the matter was,' said Mr. Shelby. "'Where is Eliza, if you know?' "'Well, massa, I saw her with my own eyes, a-crossin' on the floatin' ice. She crossed most markably. It wasn't no less nor miracle, and I saw a man help her up on the house side, and then she was lost in the dusk. Sam, I think this rather apocryphal, this miracle. Crossing on floating ice isn't so easily done, said Mr. Shelby. Easy! Couldn't nobody done it without the Lord, why now, said Sam. Twas just this your way. Massa Haley and me and Andy, we comes up to the little tavern by the river, and I rides a leetle ahead. I so zealous to be cotchin' Lizzie that I couldn't hold in no way. And when I comes by the tavern winder, sure enough there she was, right in plain sight, and they diggin' on behind, while I loses off my head and I sings out enough to raise the dead. Course Lizzie she hires, and she dodges back, when Mass Haley ye gone past the door, and then, I tell you, she clared out the side door. She went down to the river bank. Mass Haley he seed her, and yelled out, and him and me and Andy, we took arter. Down she come to the river, and thar was the current running ten feet wide by the shore, and over t'other side a ice a-sawin' and a-jigglin' up and down, kinder as t'were a great island. We come right behind her, and I thought my soul he'd got her sure enough. When she gin sich a screech as I never hearn, and thar she was, clar on to the other side of the current, on the ice, and then on she went, a-screechin' and a-jumpin', the ice went crack, swallop, crackin', chunk, and she a-boundin' like a buck. Lord, the spring that our gals got in there ain't common, I'm opinion. Mrs. Shelby sat perfectly still, pale with excitement, while Sam told his story. God be praised, she isn't dead, she said. But where is the poor child now? The Lord will provide, said Sam, rolling up his eyes piously. As I've been a-sayin', this year is a providence, and no mistake, as Mrs. has allers been a-instructin' on us. There's allers instruments rise up to de Lord's will. Now, if tadn't been for me to-day, she'd have been took a dozen times. Warn't it I started off to horses dis yer mornin', and, and kept em chasin' till nigh dinner-time? And didn't I car Massa Haley night five miles out at the road dis evenin', or else he'd a come up a Lizzie as easy as a dog out a coon? These yer's all providences. They are a kind of providences that you'll have to be pretty sparing of, Master Sam. I allow no such practices with gentlemen on my place," said Mr. Shelby, with as much sternness as he could command under the circumstances. Now, there is no more use in making believe be angry with a negro than with a child. Both instinctively see the true state of the case, through all attempts to affect the contrary. And Sam was in no wise disheartened by this rebuke though he assumed an air of doleful gravity, and stood with the corners of his mouth lowered in most penitential style. "'Mass is quite right, quite. It was ugly on me. There's no disputin' that are. And, of course, Master and Missus wouldn't encourage no such works. I'm sensible of that are. But a poor nigger like me's mazin' tempted to act ugly sometimes, when fellers will cut up such shines as dat are Massa Haley. He ain't no gentleman no way.' Anybody's been raised as I've been can't help seeing that are. Well, Sam, said Mrs. Shelby, as you appear to have a proper sense of your errors, you may go now and tell Aunt Chloe she may get you some of that cold ham that was left of dinner to-day. You and Andy must be hungry. 
"'Mrs. is a heap too good for us,' said Sam, making his bow with alacrity and departing. It will be perceived, as has been before intimated, that Master Sam had a native talent that might undoubtedly have raised him to eminence in political life, a talent of making capital out of everything that turned up, to be invested for his own especial praise and glory, and, having done up his piety and humility as he trusted to the satisfaction of the parlour, he clapped his palm-leaf on his head, with a sort of rakish, free-and-easy air, and proceeded to the dominions of Aunt Chloe, with the intention of flourishing largely in the kitchen. "'I'll speechify these yar niggers,' said Sam to himself. "'Now I've got a chance. Lord, I'll reel it off to make em stare.' It must be observed that one of Sam's especial delights had been to ride in attendance on his master to all kinds of political gatherings, where, roosted on some rail-fence, or perched aloft in some tree, he would sit watching the orators, with the greatest apparent gusto, and then, descending among the various brethren of his own color, assembled on the same errand, he would edify and delight them with the most ludicrous burlesques and imitations, all delivered with the most imperturbable earnestness and solemnity. And though the auditors immediately about him were generally of his own color, it not infrequently happened that they were fringed pretty deeply with those of a fair complexion, who listened, laughing and winking, to Sam's great self-congratulation. In fact, Sam considered oratory as his vocation, and never let slip an opportunity of magnifying his office. Now, between Sam and Aunt Chloe there had existed, from ancient times, a sort of chronic feud, or rather a decided coolness. But, as Sam was meditating something in the provision department, as the necessary and obvious foundation of his operations, he determined, on the present occasion, to be eminently conciliatory, for he well knew that although Mrs. Orders would undoubtedly be followed to the letter, yet he should gain a considerable deal by enlisting the spirit also. He therefore appeared before Aunt Chloe with a touchingly subdued, resigned expression, like one who has suffered immeasurable hardships in behalf of a persecuted fellow-creature enlarged upon the fact that Mrs. had directed him to come to Aunt Chloe for whatever might be wanting to make up the balance in his solids and fluids, and thus unequivocally acknowledged her right and supremacy in the cooking department, and all thereto pertaining. The thing took accordingly. No poor, simple, virtuous body was ever cajoled by the attentions of an electioneering politician with more ease than Aunt Chloe was won over by Master Sam Suavities and, if he had been the prodigal son himself, he could not have been overwhelmed with more maternal bountifulness, and he soon found himself seated, happy and glorious, over a large tin pan, containing a sort of olla podrida of all that had appeared on the table for two or three days past. Savory morsels of ham, golden blocks of corn-cake, fragments of pie of every conceivable mathematical figure, chicken-wings, gizzards, and drumsticks all appeared in picturesque confusion and Sam, as monarch of all he surveyed, sat with his palm-leaf cocked rejoicingly to one side, and patronizing Andy at his right hand. The kitchen was full of all his compeers, who had hurried and crowded in from the various cabins, to hear the termination of the day's exploits. Now was Sam's hour of glory. The story of the day was rehearsed, with all kinds of ornament and varnishing which might be necessary to heighten its effect. For Sam, like some of our fashionable dilettanti, never allowed a story to lose any of its gilding by passing through his hands. Roars of laughter attended the narration, 
and were taken up and prolonged by all the smaller fry, who were lying in any quantity about on the floor, or perched in every corner. In the height of the uproar and laughter, Sam, however, preserved an immovable gravity, only from time to time rolling his eyes up and giving his auditors diverse inexpressibly droll glances, without departing from the sententious elevation of his oratory. "'You see, fellow-countrymen,' said Sam, elevating a turkey's leg with energy, "'you see now what dis air child up ter, for fendin' yer all, yes, all on yer, for him as he tries to get one of our people is as good as trying to get all. You see the principle is same, dat ar is clar, and any one of these air drivers that comes smellin' round arter any our people, why, he's got me in this way. I'm the feller he's got to set in with.' I'm the feller for you all to come to, Bredon. I'll stand up for your rights. I'll fend em to the last breath. Why, but Sam, you telled me only this morning that you'd help this yar master to catch Lizzie. Seems to me your talk don't hang together, said Andy. I tell you now, Andy, said Sam, with awful superiority, don't you be talking about what you don't know nothing on. Boys like you, Andy, means well, but they can't be spected to hallucinate the great principles of action. Andy looked rebuked particularly by the hard word hallucinate, which most of the youngerly members of the company seemed to consider as a settler in the case, while Sam proceeded. "'Dat ar was conscience, Andy. When I thought of gwine arter Lizzie, I rarely expected Master was sot that way. When I found Mrs. was sot the contrary, dat ar was conscience more yet, cause fellers ours gets more by stickin' to Mrs. side. So you see, I's persistent either way, and sticks up to conscience, and holds on to principles. Yes, principles," said Sam, giving an enthusiastic toss of a chicken's neck. What's principles good for if we isn't persistent? I want to know. There, Andy, you may have dat our bone. Tain't picked up clean. Sam's audience hanging on his words with open mouth, he could not but proceed. This here matter about persistence, fellow niggers," said Sam, with the air of one entering into an abstruse subject. This here persistency sing what ain't seed into var clear by most people. Now you see, when a feller stands up for a thing one day and night, the contrary to next, folks says, and naturally enough they says, why he ain't persistent. Hand me dat ar a bit of corn cake, Andy. But let's look into it. I hope the gentlemen and their fair sex will excuse my using an ordinary sort of person. Here, I'm a-trying to get a topper to hay. Well, I puts up my larder this yer side. Tain't no go. Then, cause I don't try there no more, but puts my larder right the contrary side. Ain't I persistent? I'm persistent and want to get up. Which are side my larder is? Don't you see? All on yer? It's the only thing you ever was persistent in, Lord knows muttered Aunt Chloe, who was getting rather restive, the merriment of the evening being to her somewhat after the scripture comparison, like vinegar upon nitre. "'Yes, indeed,' said Sam, rising, full of supper and glory, for a closing effort. "'Yes, my feller-citizens and ladies of the other sex in general, I has principles. I'm proud to own them. They's persequent to these to your times, and to all times. I has principles, and I sticks to em like forty. Just anything that I thinks is principles, I goes into it. I wouldn't mind if they burnt me live. I'd walk right up to the stake, I would, and say, Here I comes to shed my last blood for my principles, for my country, for the general interest of society. Well, said Aunt Chloe, 
one of your principles will have to be to get to bed some time to-night and not to be keepin everybody up till mornin now every one of you young'uns that don't want to be cracked it better be scarce mighty sudden niggers all o' yer said sam waving his palm-leaf with benignity i give yer my blessin go to bed now and be good boys and with this pathetic benediction the assembly dispersed end of chapter 8